Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of Arc Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. I hope I don't make you blush too much, but going to just give a quick bio for why I was so excited to talk to Kevin. Is quickly become one of my favorite, if not my favorite, author. He is an incredible storyteller and scientist. His literary career began with Breakthrough, the race for the breast cancer gene. That was in the early 90s. Then there's Cracking the Genome, which is the account of the race of the Human Genome Project, the $1,000 Genome, which was collaborated with Jim Watson and Andrew Berry. And then on an updated edition was for DNA, the story of the genetic revolution. I will admit that I have all of those books. And of course, who could forget Editing Humanity, which if anyone follows me on Twitter, they know that I am very into this book. The CRISPR revolution and the new era of genome editing. Kevin actually won a Guggenheim Fellowship in 2017 to support this project. A few fun facts about this book. Again, if anyone follows me, they know I've read it and love to post about it. Kevin actually narrates it on the audiobook and Kindle. And I'm not sure about this, but did it come out the same day or within a few weeks of when the Nobel Prize was announced? Yeah, it literally came out one day before the Nobel Prize. And the following day, the New York Times expedited the review by Carl Zimmer. So that was a, a nice early push. Uh, for the book. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. And just by way of sort of a little bit of background, so graduated with a degree in biochemistry from Oxford, PhD in molecular genetics from St. Mary's Hospital Medical School, then 30 years in science publishing, which is so exciting. Founding editor of Nature Genetics, executive editor of the CRISPR journal, currently spearheading the launch of a new major multidisciplinary journal, which I'm super excited to hear more about. Gen Biotechnology, and that will be in 2022. So there is so much to talk about. I'm ready. Let's go. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so the first thing I kind of wanted to talk to you about is your amazing career trajectory. We just talked a little bit about it, but your background is fascinating. Obviously, you made the move from kind of science to publishing, but of course, even within publishing, I'm sure you use your science every day and it's still very relevant. I definitely didn't have the same journey as you did, but I did transition to finance yeah. more of an academic path. That was really interesting, but also challenging and super unexpected for me. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about your path. When you knew this maybe was something you wanted to do, did you have an aha moment? How did this kind of work out for you? Yeah, that there was an aha, but not not the one I was expecting. I mean, it'd be lovely to say that this was all carefully planned out and all part of the master plan. But in fact, the move for me to science publishing was really an act of desperation to, to, to find a some sort of meaningful career as it had slowly dawned on me that my skills at the bench were virtually non-existent, which is a weird thing to say when you're doing a postdoc in a glamorous lab at a major institute as part of MIT. But that's where I found myself. I did my PhD in a really, in a big and bustling lab in London at St. Mary's Hospital Medical School, most famous for being the site where Alexander Fleming discovered penicillin. There's a plaque on the wall as you walk past through the main doors to commemorate that fact. 
And we were genetic detectives. We were a big group trying to literally map for the first time the location of disease genes for major human diseases like muscular dystrophy, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, cystic fibrosis, and familial forms of Alzheimer's disease. And at this time in the 1980s, you know, only people of a certain era will appreciate this perhaps, but this was 10 years before the Human Genome Project. And we didn't have a sequence. We didn't have a map of the 23 pairs of human chromosomes. These were just wastelands. So trying to make the ultimate genetic discovery to identify the mutation that causes some of these aforementioned diseases, you had nowhere to look. You had nowhere to go. You had to, first of all, map the location of that gene. In 1980, a group of geneticists had had a eureka moment and published a landmark paper where they said, we have milestones dotted along every human chromosome. We just have to find them. There are naturally occurring DNA polymorphisms or variations in the sequence. And if we can just isolate snippets of DNA that, it, that house those variations, then we can use these fragments as DNA mile markers or signposts and then use them as proxies to track the inheritance of different disease genes. So that was the formula that we were doing. I was privy to the excitement when some of these disease genes were located, such as most notably the cystic fibrosis gene in 1985, which was the result of a furious race. And then, of course, the race continued to then identify the gene. By the time that was identified in 1989, I had landed in Boston to do a postdoc, but found myself in the wrong sort of lab. I don't know really why my supervisor took me. I didn't have the skills to be a protein biochemist or a cell biologist, let alone a human geneticist. So in 89, when the gene was found, my experiments were going nowhere. So I thought, well, there's a story that I know I can relate to. I'll write that up for a popular science magazine. And I sent off a speculative article to the British science magazine, New Scientist. They put that on the cover. And from that moment on, I was sort of hooked in science communication and science journalism. I thought I'd have much more fun living vicariously through other scientist exploits than trying to make my own meager contribution. And then my aha moment came a few months later when I opened the back pages of Nature to look at the look, just glance through the job ads and saw a position at Nature to join the editorial team. And I thought to myself, ah, that's, that's one way I'm going to get my byline in Nature because I'm never going to get it you know, by submitting a manuscript the traditional way. But maybe if I'm on the staff, they might let me write for them once in a while. So I landed that job and then we launched Nature Genetics and sort of the road in, in science publishing began that way. Okay, that's fascinating. Also, I do not believe that you did not have the skills of the bench, but... (laughs) (laughs) That's brutally honest, yeah. (laughs) I'm curious to see or to hear, I guess, if you had any sort of feelings about, obviously, you mentioned you're working as a geneticist, you you know, your work centered around DMD or Duchenne muscular dystrophy, Alzheimer's, CF or cystic fibrosis. Yeah. Can you comment? So that was, you know, around 1980s where we started to see some traction. How do you feel the field has evolved since, you know, you've been on the other side of it? I mean, I think these are all good lessons in that there's these eureka moments when we discover these major disease genes, but then turning them into therapies, into meaningful therapies that can treat or potentially cure a patient, you know, the hard work is only only just beginning. And we look at the long, hard road to develop personalized medicine drugs for cystic fibrosis, and that's taken two or three decades And yet that's one of the better examples that we have. We're still looking for a a successful treatment for things like Duchenne muscle dystrophy. In the Alzheimer's field, there was a very controversial uh, drug approval the FDA approved a few months ago. But we're still arguing the precise sort of chronological pathway to the onset of Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia. You've got to have these disease genes. You've got to understand the biology and sort of build up the picture. But as we're learning in, in gene editing and gene therapy, 
We still had to do the hard work of preclinical animal models and clinical trials. And these things take a lot of time and you have to weed out all of the adverse events and safety concerns uh, to make sure that you're trying to do something safe and effective for the patient. That makes sense. Yeah. There's been some interesting developments. I think it was CF that we saw. I think I just read a paper last week about prime editing uh, mm. for CF, obviously just in the lab. So there's yeah. a lot, there's a lot, obviously, DMD, a lot of gene therapy trials going on. So it's exciting. And yeah. I certainly remember that approval for Alzheimer's drug, which you mentioned, the Biogen yeah. drug, Ad- Kenemab or Adjahelm. So yeah. lots to follow there and, and some exciting developments. But okay, so you're working at Nature. And you're the founding editor of Nature Genetics. So did you say, hey, something is missing in this publication of Nature. We need to create something new. Or what was sort of the impetus? Yeah, no, it was Nature is a commercial publisher. So it was looking to expand the Nature brand. At the time in the early 90s, uh, there were no other journals that carried the Nature logo apart from Nature itself. I remember in 1991, uh, we started chatting about if we were to do a spin-off journal, what field would it be in? There were six biology editors on the team at the time. It's about three times that number today. So there was you know, the immunologist, the neuroscientist, the molecular biologist, and me, the, the human geneticist. And everyone else seemed pretty happy with their lot in life and didn't see uh, any urgent need for nature to launch a journal in immunology or medicine or any other field. But in human genetics, we'd had some fun little battles internally about whether certain papers deserve to be peer-reviewed or published and uh, I often seem to come out on the losing end of some of those. But I remember we were talking about the importance of mapping disease genes. I remember when the gene to map familial ALS, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or Lou Gehrig's disease, I thought this surely had the makings of a nature paper. A, because we know nothing about the molecular basis of this disease, and this is the way that we're going to finally crack it. And B, the disease is literally named after an American sporting icon. How could this not be of general interest? The sort of thing that nature would publish. but in terms of purely evaluating the scientific breakthrough, the feeling was, well, yeah, they've just mapped the location of the gene. There's still years of work left to do. And so maybe we'll hold out until the gene itself is discovered. So I thought, here's a running list of papers that I felt really deserved to be in a high-profile publication. The Human Genome Project, of course, got off the ground. So as we're evaluating what this nature spin-off journal should be, I said, well, why not genetics? There's all kinds of reasons to do this. The journal was approved, the launch was approved in Thanksgiving week. 30 years ago, we were almost at the anniversary of 1991, and I was given four months to get the journal off the ground, and somehow we managed it. That's really an incredible story. And of course, executive editor of the CRISPR journal. So was there something that you felt was lacking at Nature Genetics? Did you feel this was a hole in the market? Or what was sort of the impetus there to start the CRISPR journal? Yeah, I ran Nature Genetics for about the first five years, and then went off and did other other kinds of journals and uh, magazine editorships. Fast forward to maybe 2015, 2016, I confess that the wave of the CRISPR revolution completely passed me by. I wasn't aware of the the blockbuster papers from 2012 and 2013. I wasn't following the gene editing field particularly closely at the time. And then, as you mentioned in the intro, Ali, working on a a book with, with Jim Watson, updating a book called DNA, The Story of the Genetic Revolution, my task was to briefly summarize the major scientific breakthroughs in molecular genetics over the past 15 years since the first edition had come out. So I could not help but stumble upon CRISPR and see these two women in particular, Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier, being fated with all these fabulous scientific awards. So I started looking into CRISPR, and it didn't take very long for the penny to drop that here was an absolute revolution. And surely the genesis, not just for a book, which I course, started to write Editing Humanity, 
but maybe a peer-reviewed journal as well, because it would be a truly multidisciplinary journal embracing elements of genetics and evolution and immunology and medicine and many other fields besides. And I took that idea, I was looking for a new position at the time, I took that idea to Marianne Liebert, a privately held publishing company just outside New York, and they loved it. They've been in the publishing business for about 40 years. They launched the journal Human Gene Therapy and many other niche titles in the decades since then. And they embraced this idea. And so we put an editorial board together. We recruited Rodolf Barangu, one of the heroes of the early years of the CRISPR story, to be the chief editor. The journal's now four years old, and we're publishing some, some pretty exciting stuff. So it's been a fun ride. I'm definitely a reader. So, good, good. so I can attest to enjoying a lot of really great content there. But and then, of course, spearheading a new launch of a multidisciplinary journal, Gen Biotechnology, that's going to be in 2022. Can you give us kind of a preview there? Oh, I'd love to. Yeah, yeah. So we just celebrated the 40th anniversary of Gen. That's the magazine of engineering and biotechnology news. 40 years covering the biotechnology industry, published in the same offices as these other journals that we just mentioned. It dawned on me, why have we never really tried to put the biotech beat, the gen covers, together with the peer-reviewed scholarly publishing prowess that the other half of the company works on? So there are some very, very good biotech journals out there, but none with a star-studded, diverse academic editorial board. So we're in the midst of putting that board together. We're going to announce the chief editor very soon, I hope, and launching in about January or February of next year. We hope to put out an absolutely indispensable journal publishing original research, but also lots of fun commentary and opinion and analysis. So I have to talk to you offline, Ali, about contributing to that. <laughs> well, uh, you know, would be an honor. Be an honor. <laughs> okay. So appreciate it. I won't talk more about how much I love your writing. So moving on maybe to more of the books. So Breakthrough, The Race for the Breast Cancer gene in the early 1990s. So that must have been a really wild thing to be writing about. You know, I got into what I do because my grandmother actually passed away from lung cancer mm. and I wanted to do anything I could yeah. do to potentially help the suffering of, of other families and, you know, for them not to go through what we did, which was basically you get a cancer diagnosis shortly after the first hospital visit and a very, very short time after that, yeah. unfortunately, to succumb to the illness. So I'm just curious, did, did something personal happen to you if you want to share or if not, that's okay? Well, uh, no, no. I lost my dad to cancer very early on uh, in my... I'm sorry. My, thank you. I don't know that that was a prime motivation. I remember probably a, a more visceral moment was when I met Mary Claire King for the first time. It was actually at the Nature Genetics first birthday party slash conference that I put together in 1993. She was one of our major speakers and I was spellbound not only for her work in mapping the BRCA1 gene in 1990, which was the culmination of a 15-year stunning effort, flying basically so all of the other experts really doubted that a hereditary breast cancer gene even existed. So I was enthralled by that, but also her previous work. When she was a graduate student working with Alan Wilson, she, just studying protein polymorphisms, basically published a paper that said humans and chimpanzees are separated or are, are 1% different at the genetic level. I mean, that's just a pr profoundly important paper based on really crude biochemical assays at the time. She also did amazing work with the disappeared in South America, reuniting families with children who had been ripped apart through military uh, upheavals in, in South America. So she had all of these great aspects to her story. And I guess privately, secretly, I was hoping that she would go on having mapped BRCA1 to chromosome 17 to then go on and find the gene. Of course, there was a furious, or fierce maybe is a better term, race with half a dozen different contenders. 
And ultimately, of course, Mary Claire lost that race to Myriad Genetics, the biotech company in Salt Lake City. I heard a talk she gave recently. I love the way she put it because it was a devastating loss at the time. But over the course of time, I think she's rationalized it this way. I found BRCA1, she says, Myriad cloned it. So that's one way of looking at it. And I don't think that's a fair way of putting it. And I vividly remember the scene is in the book. The weeks after Myriad published the identification of the gene in science in late 1994, there was a special session put together at the American Society of Human Genetics, which three Myriad scientists gave short sort of TED-like talks just to celebrate the discovery of the gene, discuss how they found it, and some of their early analyses. And they were, they were good talks, but nothing spectacular. And then Mary Claire King was invited up to the stage to kind of almost as a consolation prize, just as sort of because of her longevity in the field and her brilliant work leading up to this identification of the gene. And she absolutely blew the Myriad team out of the water. She had, with her team, analyzed the gene in dozens of large families with, with hereditary breast cancer. And just the audience of thousands of, of scientists of geneticists were, were just spellbound and rewarded her after 10 or 15 minutes with a standing ovation, even though she had been the loser, if you will, in the race to identify the genes. So that was a, a remarkable moment. Breakthrough did not trouble the bestseller list, I think it's fair to say. I, I wrote the book with the late Michael White, an old friend from college. I'm proud of it. It got me started in, in book writing. And it, it had the three elements that I have seized upon for every other book that I've written since then. One is it has to be about genetics because that's really the answer of science or anything that I can possibly claim to have any expertise in. Two, it's got to have some medical or societal impact. And obviously, the race for the breast cancer gene, the human genome project, consumer genetics, all of these, and gene editing, all of these stories have that and more. And three, there needs to be some sort of personal drama, some rivalry, a race of some sort, because uh, this adds to the narrative thread that, that sort of propels these stories and hopefully makes it engaging for a wider audience than just the scientific community. So that was the start of the template, I suppose. So I love how you broke that down by saying there had to be some rivalry, some kind of race. Oh my <laughs> yeah. God, I can't think of anything else but CRISPR when you say that. I know there, I know there was some kind of you know race with cracking the genome and the thousand dollar genome. Oh, yeah. But, yeah. but for me, I, <laughs> you say that and I'm just like, yep, we're talking about CRISPR. You know, I'd actually be curious though, before we kind of dig into that a little bit more. I was saying the other day to someone, I want to go just into labs and do experiments every day. And that's not always possible. And I was talking to someone about this and they said, well, why don't you write a book? And I was like, well, that seems counterintuitive. How would writing a book help me get closer to lab? And they said that actually, when you're writing a book, you get to have access to these amazing scientists that you're writing about, but also to do experiments and, and some other pretty interesting things. So I'm just wondering... If you have any stories or anything that maybe surprised you that you were able to do or that you had access to that maybe you didn't think you did, if you want to share, obviously. When I hung up my lab coat in 1990 to join Nature, I mean, I never looked back. I really never had any inkling or urge to put a, a lab coat on ever again. I'm not sure that I ever have, to be honest. So, But you're right about the access. I mean, I felt that just joining Nature, I, the move from being a pretty mediocre postdoc to suddenly being the gatekeeper for any author who wanted to publish a paper in human genetics in nature, it landed on my desk, literally with a FUD. This was pre-World Wide Web, so everything was FedEx in, you know, in four hard copies. And you know, our days were spent just thumbing through new manuscripts and feeling, getting that chill when you thought, well, I'm the first person other than anybody in the lead author's lab or maybe close family to to read this story about the discovery of triplet repeat 
diseases or the identification of the male sex determining gene or the discovery in 1991 of the X inactivation center. You know, these, this was thrilling. And often these papers came in because I'd met the scientists at different conferences and there's a certain amount of solicitation that goes on. And a great example of that was in 1991, now at Nature, but reading the latest issue of Science and stumbling upon a paper by a scientist I'd never heard of named Craig Venter. And he, in a letter in Science, had published a study that says we have identified about 350 human genes, just randomly sequencing snippets of uh, cDNA libraries, and then running searches and finding you know, which sequences are homologous to previously discovered genes from fruit flies or yeast or bacteria or whatever. And at a time when a major paper in elite science journals, Nature Cell Science, and the Journal, et cetera, was finding and identifying one gene, he was this kind of unknown scientist at NIH at the time, now announcing he's developed a shortcut method to identify literally hundreds of genes in one fell swoop. I mean, I got chills reading that paper. I immediately hunted him down. I led a delegation up to Bethesda to take him to lunch to basically say we were absolutely floored by that paper and we'd love your next paper to come to nature. Or at least, you know, we can't guarantee publication, but at least we'd love to consider it. And that's often how journal editors work and put their stamp on a journal. And sure enough, Venter did submit his next paper to nature. And, and that, I think, got getting to know him a little bit through that prime me for that astonishing moment in May 1998 when he electrified, not in a good way, the uh, genome community by saying, it was announced on the front page of the New York Times, hey guys, I'm going to mount a hostile takeover for the Human Genome Project. You guys are too slow. It's too boring. It's I've got a faster method. I'm going to fill a warehouse full of the latest sequencing machines. I'm going to get Compact to build me the world's largest civilian supercomputer. And we're going to do this in two years, what's going to take you another seven or eight years. So in terms of the race box, you know, check, yes, <laughs> that's a story. So that became the basis for cracking the genome. Yeah. So, you know, what you mentioned is really interesting. One, because you're clearly good at solicitation, but also <laughs> because you mentioned thumbing through these publications, being the first person to see these manuscripts is probably something that, I don't know, I guess depends on your background and how nerdy you are. But for me, that's like a dream come true. I, yeah. I, imagine anything cooler. Yeah, well, that's why I think there's you know, a lot of people who made that switch to science publishing. Many of them are still very happy and content doing that same thing, that the journal may have changed, but it's a privilege to be in that sort of position. And of course, it's a great stepping stone for people. I've got many friends who've gone on to become executive directors of foundations and academic medical centers. There is life after the bench. And there's many more opportunities now, because remember, in 1990, when I joined Nature, there, were, there wasn't a, an army or a flotilla of Nature sister journals. There was only one science, and there's only a, a few journals that, uh, in the Cell franchise. But you know, now there are literally dozens of scientific journals with professional editing staff. So there's lots and lots of opportunities. So it's an exciting time. One of the things that really struck me that we talk about all the time, you mentioned this in Editing Humanity as well, but... There's definitely an issue in publishing. It's still quite troubling. It's a race to any new development, any new potential sighting of something interesting, which is sort of unfortunate, but I guess there's no real way around that, at least now. But it's interesting to me when you talk, about, and also coming from sort of the publishing sphere, you probably have like a really interesting perspective that a lot of people don't have, in that you actually see these articles and are one of the people you know, that are actually making these decisions. So it's an issue about this sort of race to the finish line idea, but it's also an issue in sort of demographic representation as well. I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on this huge burden that editors face in terms of deciding when a paper gets in, in editing humanity, 
certainly talk about. Yes, well, yes. Well, <laughs> if it, one it, paper had gotten in first, yeah. it could have changed everything. It might have changed some things. Yeah, I mean, I think. Yeah, I have obviously firsthand knowledge of the. I mean, power. I don't think is too strong a word. The influence that a lot of journal editors have. And in any field, this sort of crops up every year at Nobel Prize time. You look through and find out when was a certain study published, where was it published. And of course, in the CRISPR story, there are two very, at least two very interesting situations where authors didn't necessarily get the full credit that they might have deserved because journals decided in their infinite wisdom not to publish their paper. The first account of the identity of the sequences sandwiched in between the CRISPR repeats submitted by Francisco Mojica, went to Nature. But here's a relatively unknown Spanish microbiologist with this observation. And the Nature editors, in their infinite wisdom, decided this wasn't of sufficient general interest or a sufficient advance for them to consider. And it took Mojica three or four other journals before he got published, almost two years after he'd made that initial observation. He was almost scooped, in fact, because of that delay. And then, of course, in 2012, we have the story of Virginia Schicksness, who published a paper that in many respects was quite similar to the landmark paper of Jennifer Dowd and Emmanuel Charpentier's published in Science in the summer of 2012. But Virginius, who submitted his own paper a little bit earlier, he sent his paper to Cell because there aren't so many times in a scientist's life where you feel this paper is worthy of one of the truly elite, most prestigious journals in the world. And Cell bounced his paper without sending it for peer review because the professional editor handling it obviously didn't, just wasn't seduced by the story, just didn't think it had, again, it comes down usually to, is this of sufficient interest to our readers who cover all aspects of molecular biology? Or is it a major advance for the field? And Cell, in its wisdom, decided it wasn't. And by the time Virgis finally got his paper published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, which is not a bad journal by any means, but the world had moved on because Doudna and Charpentier and their colleagues had published in Science. Their paper, of course, had the single guide RNA, this wonderfully cute trick to fuse two RNAs to really simplify the process of gene editing, which was a step that Virgis didn't have in that paper. So even though Virgis had seen many of the same applications of this system, and had even coined the term DNA surgery in his paper, he was left you know, to pick up the pieces. Now, I first became aware of him when I read a popular science story by a wonderful journalist named Sarah Zhang in Wired. And so she sort of pointed out this plight, and not just of Schicksonis, but of other scientists who've been overlooked by their first choice journals. And Virgis did get some recognition, perhaps belatedly, but I think deserved, when he shared the Kavli Prize, one of the most prestigious prizes, second only to really the Nobel Prize, in 2018. And I, one of the vignettes in the opening chapter of Editing Humanity is when I went to Oslo to sort of observe this and, and just hang out a little bit with him. And you see there's a light on his face when he picked up this prize, which he shared with Dowder and Charpentier, when it came time a couple of years later for the Nobel Committee to evaluate many of those same discoveries, obviously they took a slightly different view. The Cavalry Prize went for the invention of CRISPR-Cas9, a precise nanotool for editing DNA. But the Nobel Committee, uh, and I don't think anyone is complaining, maybe when they gave the award to Dowden and Charpentier, the first women to share the Chemistry Nobel Prize, I believe in history, and I think that that was very well deserved. I think one other nuance here is mammalian cells, right? So I think that was super interesting when I was reading the book. Of course, I knew about that that difference. Yeah. Uh, but what I thought was really cool is you had the original email in the book that Fang Zhang wrote to Jennifer Downa when he <laughs> was able to 
CRISPR edit mammalian cells. I felt like that was a privilege to read. That was so interesting uh, to me. So yeah, that nuance. Well, yeah, we don't have, I think you need an entirely separate episode on the whole patent saga because that's still bumbling on. And I enjoyed, obviously my book was coming towards publication before we knew about the prize. So I didn't want to just come out and sort of speculate who's going to win the Nobel Prize, but I did reproduce a fun conversation I had with Rodolphe Barangu, with whom I work closely on the CRISPR journal. And I asked him this question, you know, who's going to get credit for the discovery of CRISPR gene editing? And he said something I thought would be interesting. It says, it's, Kevin, it's not about who's going to get credit or when or, or, or where. The first thing you have to decide is which prize, chemistry or medicine, because depending on which lens you're looking at, it will quite significantly change your perspective. And I thought it was interesting that uh, obviously it was the chemistry prize that has won in 2020. This seemed to surprise Charpentier, who is a microbiologist and probably never really considered herself to be a chemist. So I think she was a little pleasantly surprised, obviously, that she picked up the prize in chemistry. She might have suspected it would be for medicine. So I didn't come right out and say who I predict will win the Nobel Prize, but there's a lovely sleeve of color photo book. And the only two people who I decided warranted a full page photograph all to themselves were Jennifer Dowder and Emmanuel Charpentier. So maybe I knew something. I took both photos, Jennifer sitting at the uh, cradling a model of Cas9, the CRISPR Cas9, speaking at the World uh, the World Science Festival in New York, and Emmanuel Charpentier posing with a copy of one of my older books, which was very nice of her. Sorry, I just had to flip into the book, obviously, and see the pictures. <laughs> <laughs> but you see what I mean, right? <laughs> yes, yes, I do. And it's, you know, it's lovely to see George with the woolly mammoth that I've yeah. and now. This video also, which I thought was amazing, of the Cas9, where you can actually see it cutting the strand of DNA. Anyway, yeah, amazing, really cool pictures. So sorry. I was like, oh, yeah, let me, let me look at those again. But yeah, just as you described, yeah. uh, really incredible pictures. You know, it's funny because as I was reading the book, I was thinking, huh, this is so funny. You talk about the Nobel Prize. And that's how I realized, you know, when it came out, because the whole time I'm wondering, okay, is Kevin going to talk about the Nobel Prize and what he thinks? And of course, he not have wanted to do that too much. But certainly, I was wondering, you know, if you had any thoughts on that. Anyway, I don't know if you want to well, get no, into no, I, too much I, in depth. I, mean, but... I, think, I think the prize was brilliant. And it's it was great, not just for the amazing work that Dowden and Charpentier did, but also for promoting the women in science who have been you know, overlooked for so long in, in so many different areas. Of course, the most recent round of Nobel Prizes sort of went back into their more traditional male-dominated roots. I think in the book I do, I mean, it's okay to discuss were there other permutations possible, but you have to remember, of course, that the Nobel Prize can only go to a maximum of three scientists. Those are the rules. And you brought up the first papers in the first days of January 2013 in science on the first demonstration of gene editing in mammalian cells, Ali. And those two papers were led by Feng Zhang at the Broad and his former colleague, George Church at Harvard Medical School. And I think Feng was, because he's been embroiled in this big ongoing patent dispute, was certainly frequently touted as being a potential Nobel laureate for the original discovery of CRISPR. But you couldn't really separate, he did, from the work that George Church did, literally published side by side in the same journal the same week. So four into three doesn't go. So I think that perhaps was one consideration. I think also I look back fondly when I was writing the book about a visit with Francisco Mojica in Spain. We went to the Salt Lakes where he was you know, the, the, the home of the bacteria that were the source for his fascination with CRISPR that led to his breakthrough, his A, naming the term CRISPR. That was Francisco's term that he coined in, in an email exchange with a colleague in 2001. 
and then of course the identification of these viral sequences trapped in the bacterial genome that opened our understanding of this CRISPR being in nature an antiviral immune system. The Spanish media over the last few years have been incessantly touting Mojica's claims for a share of the Nobel Prize. But I took him for a beer after our little tour of the, the Salt Lakes, and I asked him about that. And he said, you know, as, as for all the media speculation, he said in a whisper, I hate it. I, I hate it. He just, speaking of wanting to just do experiments, that's really all he cared about or cares about. So hopefully now he's got some peace and can go back to the thing that he loves the best. Those are the people that I'm always like, I want them to get recognition. The people who just want to sit and do experiments are certainly the ones that I'm like, I want them to get the recognition. But of course, you know, the Nobel Prize was divvied out to who, you know, the committee yeah, thought and was. We, and I don't think we should, yeah, and I don't yeah. think we should get all hung up on the Nobel Prize. There have been yeah, other, yeah. there have been dozens of scientific awards, many other, probably a dozen more scientists have been celebrated and have been cited for different contributions at different parts of the story. You know, it's the old cliche of standing on the shoulders of giants. It's very much a, a team effort. I have a chapter literally called The Heroes of CRISPR, named uh, borrowing, stealing the title of an infamous review that Eric Lander wrote in, in Cell when he was trying to put his sort of spin on the genesis of the technology. You know, now it's not about prizes. It's about how we turn this technology into how we apply it in science and in medicine. Yeah, definitely. Everyone has their place for recognition. So that's the nice part. You know, someone that in the CRISPR story that I think doesn't get a ton of recognition, but probably deserves it, is Stanley Chi, who obviously developed DCAS9 or DeadCAS9. I think it's a super important discovery because it's used for base editing. It's used for a lot of these next generation CRISPR techniques that we talk about. When we had David Liu on the podcast, we talked a lot about base editing and prime yeah. editing. And, yeah. and DeadCAS9 is important. So just curious on your thoughts there, Dr. I, Chi's kind of involvement. Yeah. Yeah. I think you've highlighted a very much an unsung contribution, maybe not for scientists in the field who really admire and respect what Stanley has done. Stanley Chi is an assistant professor at Stanford. But you're right, Dead Cas9 now, even you you open my eyes to this actually. It's an ingenious and a very important advance in expanding the CRISPR toolbox. Because of course Cas9 is the actual scissors, the Nobel the in 2020 cited Doudner and Charpentier for the development of the genetic scissors. Cas9 is the scissors, but it's also the machinery with the RNA guide takes you to the right part of the genome in order to affect the edit that you want to make. And by blunting the scissors, you can still use the sort of the GPS signaling properties of the Cas9 RNA construct without the actual scissors. So you can either blunt the scissors completely, or you can restore the ability to cut one strand and thus a so-called nicase. And all of these are very useful and important tools that I'm sure will only become more important as the technology continues to evolve. Yeah, certainly. So that's just one of my favorite, yeah, <laughs> my yeah. favorite people who I think doesn't get a ton of airtime, I guess. So I, I just wanted to mention it as, you know, it was in the book and I, yeah. I think it's really an important discovery. So now to everyone's favorite topic, just kidding, but vectors. So obviously there has been a ton of speculation, trepidation, excitement. I mean, every type of feeling under the sun for vectors. So you definitely talk about gene therapy and people, including scientists, bullish and bearish views on the technology. Some saying, you know, at the time that maybe it was too early, others mm. being so excited that maybe we have this ethical responsibility to ensure patients get the therapy right away because, mm. you know, then we could get them help sooner. We obviously know what happened in one of the Wilson trials with Jesse Galsinger, yeah. who was a very brave 18-year-old boy who joined an anti-gene therapy trial. 
There are others, of course, like Alan Fisher's trial. There were two boys with SCID who originally got benefit from the therapy, developed leukemia. A lot of this has been largely attributed to retroviruses integrating into the genome. So just curious, for what's going on now in some trials, does this feel a little bit like deja vu for you? With lentiviral vector, we're talking about insertion potentially in patients. Maybe we're talking about secondary cancers, talks with the FDA on, on AAV safety. Even though these are kind of the next generation viral vectors that you talk about in the book, what kind are you thinking in terms of... Well, I think, no, a very important issue. And I think a lot of CRISPR scientists and physicians who are looking to use CRISPR will say really that the challenge now is delivery. The editing system itself may not be perfect, but it's where it's getting ever more precise. And you've had David Lewon a couple of times on the show talk about the beauty of this precision genome editing, technology-based editing and prime editing. And that's wonderful, but we've still got to get it get this machinery to the right cells, the right organs, the right parts of the body. And in writing Editing Humanity, I didn't just want to jump from, okay, now we've discovered CRISPR, let's just jump to talking about how we're going to use it to edit genes in patients with sickle cell or blindness or other a host of other genetic diseases. I felt it was important to put that into context, which is to talk about the decades-long quest to, to develop gene replacement therapy. So, of course, the first trial, and much of this is fairly well known, the first approved gene therapy trial took place at the NIH in 1990, led by French Anderson and his team. And over the course of the 1990s, culminating sadly with the death of Jesse Gelsinger, you know, great progress was made and different types of vectors were developed. A lot of them were relying on adenovirus as the gene therapy vector, including in the infamous Gelsinger trial. And when in the aftermath of Gelsinger's death and then the other adverse events that occurred in a different trial in France in the early 2000s, the whole field had to almost take a pause and step back and say, this is going nowhere. We cannot continue along this path. We have got to go back to basics and find a new, safe and effective vector, viral vector that can deliver these cargoes. And AV or adeno-associated viruses become one of the most popular and prevalent vectors because it's relatively innocuous. We've all been exposed to and been infected by AV, usually without any symptoms at all. And there's a large family of these that occur in nature. And there's many companies springing up that are now redesigning the capsids of these vectors to give them new uh, properties to better target specific cell types or tissue types, uh, and obviously to try to make them as less or as least immunogenic as possible. So AAV is one of the most prevalent viruses now used, both in traditional gene therapy trials, as well as some gene editing trials. We're still seeing some applications for lentivirus. But with all of these vectors, we cannot say yet that we can guarantee that there's no immune response. We have to be vigilant for that. And there's a huge amount of work that is still going on to ensure that when we inject billions of viral copies into the blood or some other tissue of a, of a patient, that it's going to happen as inertly and innocuously uh, as possible. One of the big reasons, finally, on, on this question about there was so much excitement uh, a few months ago when the Intellia in vivo genome editing study was published is, of course, that it was another stunning example for the use of non-viral vectors to deliver the CRISPR cargo. In this case, it was two cells in the liver using these liposomal vectors that no virus, these, these sort of fatty blobs just sort of merge with the target cells and provide, a, in, in some cases at least, a really effective, stealthy way to deliver the cargo. And of course, there's many other new forms of vectors being developed. So we're not out of the woods yet completely, but so this, along with off-target effects and all of the other safety issues that have sprung up and 
largely dissipated over the last five or seven years since the CRISPR revolution really began. Yeah, these are all things that every scientist, every physician, everybody looking to treat a patient has to be vigilant for because you know the last thing that any patient needs, and certainly the last thing that the CRISPR gene editing field needs, is a repeat of another Jesse Gelsinger. Right. And obviously, heartfelt sympathies go out of Jesse's family, of course. Yeah. So now that we're kind of on maybe not bearish, but maybe concerning sides of, of the field, you know, oftentimes I spend a lot of time thinking about the promise of, yeah. of a potential cure, the idea of taking chronic therapies and making them go away with a one-time dose and how exciting that would be for patients, physicians, caregivers. But of course, we should spend some time thinking about what could go wrong and how does that affect patients on the clinical trials, their families, et cetera. And so I think you did a really good job of explaining some of those things. But other things we can talk about, of course, I know you mentioned you're happy to talk about what happened with editing germlines. We can talk a little bit about that. I think that would be helpful, somatic gene editing. And then I think after that, let's circle back and maybe talk about cost, because I think yeah. that could be another one that's seen as negative. Yeah. Well, yes, I spent, when I was sort of a third of the way writing the draft of Editing Humanity, I was uh, chagrined to discover, in a way, that Jennifer Doudna had published a, a wonderful book called A Cracking Creation. And I thought, holy cow, she's, she's scooped me. This is a brilliant, not fa fascinating sort of a portrait of Jennifer as a scientist and talked about her the sort of the wake up call she had in 2015 when she became she took on the responsibility of having the scientific community face up to the potential misuses of CRISPR, which was a really commendable thing that she had no need to do, but she she felt the responsibility as the co-developer of the technology to do that. So yeah, I was a little bummed when that book came out, co-authored with Sam Sternberg. And I thought, this is, the, I mean, this is the, the best primer probably that'll ever be written on CRISPR. So what am I doing? But then in 2018, I flew to Hong Kong to attend this uh, genome ethics conference. And it's a bioethics conference. You're not predicting, you're not you know, expecting, you know, an explosion of controversy and, and drama. But I remember the plane landing in Hong Kong, you know, opening the phone, sort of lazily turning to Twitter and just seeing a, a timeline explode because this uh, Antonio Regalado, brilliant journalist at MIT Technology Review, had scooped the Associated Press and revealed the likely existence of CRISPR babies. There's a fun passage in my book, Editing Humanity, where I talk about how Antonio met JK a month earlier in a strictly off-the-record conversation, a two-hour conversation at a hotel near Shenzhen. That's a long story I won't get into here. But the point is that Antonio was sort of, he left that meeting sort of primed. He knew that something was up. He just got a sense that JK was up to something. He had been editing, reporting and, and giving talks about editing experiments in, in monkeys. But it seemed, why would he stop there? And Regalado sensed something that no one else had really spotted and then was, was ready to kind of break the news that JK was running a trial. And then, of course, everything came down in, in Hong Kong over the next 72 hours. JK was scheduled to speak. He was persuaded to speak or to keep his position on the program and speak. And there was this extraordinary moment for which the press at the conference were sidelined to a sort of a bullpen at the back and the side of the hall. I sort of you know, pretended to ask a question in the preceding session so that I could sneak into the front row and watch as the doors finally opened and JK shuffled, not shuffled, he walked across the stage carrying a briefcase like he was a, a commuter walking to the ferry. No, the, the hall was packed, but no applause, just the clatter of about 200 high-speed camera shutters catching this moment in history. The first question was asked by your previous guest, David Liu, when JK sat down and took questions from the audience. And it was a killer question. It was, what was the unmet medical need 
that you were trying to solve for? Because, of course, this was the first time that anybody had attempted germline genome editing, editing cells, editing genes in a human embryo that could then be passed down through future generations in contrast to all of the other examples that we've been speaking about over the previous 50 minutes or so, which we would term somatic genome editing, where there's no chance of any of those edits being passed down to that patient's children. JK had gone this massive step further and was really being condemned in real time for crossing this ethical red line. He's now in jail. He was sentenced to jail at the end of 2019. So he's about to enter, I think, the third year of his three-year prison sentence. I think he's been barred from doing any genome editing work. So whether we hear from him again remains to be seen. Sadly, we've heard nothing, at least that I'm aware of, of the fate of the two, possibly three children that were gene edited, Lulu, Nana, and another child that was probably born a few months later. We hope they are being cared for and monitored by members of the Chinese medical establishment, but I don't think anybody is aware of anything about their well-being. Because, of course, the quality, the type of editing that was performed by JK and his staff on the CCR5 gene, which codes for the HIV receptor, it was sloppily done. It was unable to mimic the natural deletion that occurs in this gene in a large number of people around the world. So these are Lulu and Nana and the, the third child are walking human experiments. These modifications were never studied in cells. They were never modeled in an animal model. And JK thought it was okay to go ahead and do this. So the upshot of this is, I think, the most important development since then is the report late last year from the National Academy of Sciences. They put together a blue ribbon uh, commission. And the commission concluded that if gene editing in human embryos can be shown to be completely safe, which it isn't right now, there's a lot we don't understand about it. But if we can show that it can be done safely, then there may be some medical scenarios, such as when two patients with a, a serious recessive genetic disease wish to have a child that is healthy, doesn't inherit that disease. There is no other alternative method. Pre-implantation genetic diagnosis won't work in that situation. So genome editing may yet see some sort of authorized application in human embryos. But I think that's, that scenario is still many years out. We have to understand the, the safety of embryo editing first. And it does leave open the door, no matter how many commissions and how reports are published and, and how much sort of condemnation is leveled on what JK did. We know that, and I talk about this in the book, there was a Russian geneticist in 2019, Denis Rebrikov, who sounded very interested indeed. Indeed, was recruiting couples, as reported by John Cohen in Science, for a trial of families with hereditary deafness. The gene, the mutated gene is well known and could in principle be edited to help those couples have a hearing-enabled child. It sounded for all the world like Rebrikov was ready to go ahead and begin this trial until the Russian authorities persuaded him or told him to stop. And then just a few days after JK presented in Hong Kong, even as he was uh, being moved into what the Chinese call residential surveillance, otherwise known as house arrest, he was getting emails from a fertility clinic in Dubai saying, we're really interested, Dr. Her, in your work. Do you have any materials or instructions on how we can potentially offer similar services to our customers? So I don't know that we've, we're yet safe and can say that we're never going to have to deal with some of these events again. It's pretty crazy to be in the to quote Hamilton in the room where it happens. Yeah. I can't even imagine being in that room when those that news breaks out and you're just sitting there and people are asking questions. The news had broken about 48 hours earlier. So we knew that the bombshell had dropped. We knew because he released these videos, right? He put up all these YouTube videos. We knew the names of the children. He said they came in beaming and healthy, just like any other happy child. 
So the question was, A, was he going to appear at this conference? B, how was he going to defend his actions? And we got a much more detailed explanation of his actions uh, about nine months later when Antonio Regalado again posted long excerpts of the manuscript that he had submitted to Nature. Nature rejected it. He then, I believe, resubmitted it to the Journal of the American Medical Association. They also rejected it. I don't know if he ever tried uh, any other journals. But the excerpts showed, dare I say, a kind of a misguided approach. This wasn't about helping one couple. He had, in his mind, leapt years ahead to potentially providing this sort of cure for HIV discrimination in, in China. He almost envisioned you know, potentially thousands of patients are now being spared HIV or being spared the possibility of transmitting HIV through this gene editing approach. It was at some point, I think, as a science writer, it'd be fascinating to hear his rationale and try to understand it, but I'm not losing sleep over it. If you ever do that, Kevin, I'm certainly interested to read it. I'm curious also to know, how were the rest of the questions? So you mentioned, you know, the first question went on. Did it get maybe aggressive? <laughs> Could be a word. Yeah, I think it was a one-hour session. The whole session was recorded and is available on, on YouTube, so people can go back and watch it. I think some of the questions got more aggressive, but He Jiankui was unapologetic. He believed he was right to do what he did. He didn't understand the criticisms that were leveled before, and certainly not at the time. He may have had a change of heart in the weeks and months that followed, and he's obviously had plenty of time to contemplate his actions in confinement. But the trigger for why he did this is, I explore this in the book, and I also ask the question, was he the rogue scientist that many people, including New York Times op-ed writers, portrayed him to be? That is unclear. We know that he confided in at least half a dozen prominent American scientists. He swore them to He kept them in his confidence, or he asked for their confidence, and they didn't know where to turn. When it dawned on them exactly what JK was trying to do, and then when he announced the pregnancy, what he had succeeded in in accomplishing. So he left the stage after an hour. I don't think any of the questions made him change his mind, and he was escorted back to Shenzhen, and we know the rest of the story. How wild to be there. Sorry, I like can't get over it. But another potential sort of bearish case that I've heard for gene therapy, gene editing is the cost. So yeah. we know Luxterna for LCA. We know that's about 425000 for I. We know Glybera for lipoprotein lipase deficiency. You depict this in your book quite nicely, like an idea of this heavy cream in your blood. We know that was approved in Europe, but you know the price tag was $1.5 million. And the European market just couldn't support that cost. Right. So that was withdrawn after one patient. We also know that we saw something pretty similar with Bluebird for hemoglobinopathies, where they were offered about 900000 and that just couldn't support COGS. Yeah. We've done some work, actually, at ARC, where we've shown, and I, I think the team at Novartis and Zulgensma has shown this as well, in that even though the price tag is higher, you're going to have, I mean, theoretically, the idea is a one-time dose. And so if you look at that and you average that out by life years gained for the treatment paradigm, it actually looks like it's cheaper, but I guess it depends yeah. on you look at it and what analysis yeah. you make. Yeah. I think, I mean, this is obviously a challenge that the emerging field of CRISPR medicines is going to is going to have to face. This, you know, the brilliant work that CRISPR Therapeutics and Editas and Intellia and soon to be joined by Beam and Prime and Scribe and Caribou and a host of other companies, we hope. But they've all got to be reimbursed. They've all got to make some sort of return on their lavish investment and they've all got to fund research for the next generation of drugs, and they've all got to appease their shareholders and investors, and that doesn't 
jibe with what the patients want, which is you know the most affordable, life-saving medicines possible. And yeah, you know, this doesn't just apply to fancy gene therapies and gene editing drugs. This applies to traditional small molecule drugs, of course, as well. I mean, the verse we talked we, earlier on today, Ali, we talked about cystic fibrosis and the great series of drugs that Vertex has developed over the last five years or so. But those were not available to CF patients in the UK for, I don't know exactly how long, but a year or two, while the regulators in the UK tried to reach some sort of negotiated settlement with Vertex for what the National Health Service would be charged. And I think some, if not all of them, are now available. But it took a lot of wrangling, and I don't know how many lives may have potentially uh, been lost because of that. So yeah, how we turn this stunning 21st century medicine into therapies that are affordable is going to be, I mean, that's going to be a Nobel Prize winning discovery if anybody can crack that one. Yeah. And, you know, the updates are coming so quick and so fast. As you're talking about Vertex and, you know, CTX01 for sickle cell and beta thalassemia, the yeah. collaboration between Vertex and CRISPR. Vertex yeah. just had their earnings while we're doing this call and announced actually that CTX01 for sickle cell and beta thal, those cohorts are fully enrolled. So wow. filing is expected by year end 2022. So I just, it, it, it's these updates are happening so rapidly that it's it's such an exciting field to watch. And, you know, we definitely talked about some of the negatives or some of the uncertainties, but I think at least for now, we know that the positives seem to outweigh the uncertainties for at least what we know now with the information we have now. And so I think this is just such an exciting time. I'm excited to have my small role in it. I'm excited that you have your large role in it. <laughs> I feel lucky to be able to speak to amazing scientists and science writers like yourself and just to help try and evolve the field in, in any way we can. So this is an absolute pleasure to speak to you. You could have written one of the next most interesting books. So I apologize for taking that time away. But yeah, I look forward to the next one for sure. Well, Ali, thank you so much for having me on and not Walter Isaac. We appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to make a joke, but I won't. <laughs> Walter and I get on just fine. I'm a big fan. <laughs> I read Walter's book too, The Codebreaker. It's actually really cool. Um, and you mentioned Jennifer's book, uh, you know, A Craft yeah. Creation. I've read all of those books. And what I really appreciate, actually, is that I pick up different nuances from each yeah. book. So, yeah. you know, when she's getting scooped, potentially, you know, it's funny to think of that in a book context versus a journal context, but that makes sense. But, you know, there's so many books that are coming out on gene editing. And I would say that I learn so much from each one. So yeah. I don't think there is a scoop in gene editing, because when you talk about you know, in your book, when you give the email that, like I mentioned, that that Fun wrote to Jennifer, it feels almost like you're a part of the story that you're you're being put into it. You know, or when Jennifer talks about her experiences in Hawaii as a little girl, you feel like you know her a little bit more. And so, I don't think that there's one book that's a winner. I think they all work so well together, and maybe that's analogous to the CRISPR tools. Maybe it won't be one tool uh, or a I, oh, I thought oh, I definitely yes, yeah. I think you're, you're definitely right, and and we should absolutely maybe end on by saying there's so many other. Wonderful books out there Definitely. by Hank Greeley, Eben Kirksey, John Evans, the sociologist at UCSD, Walter, of course. Uh, and there'll be more books that deal with gene editing in 2022 as well. I can't wait. My apartment is going to look like a library <laughs> yes. soon. Maybe I'll get a bigger apartment and I'll just have like a book room. So <laughs> it might all work out. But again, really, really appreciate having you on. I learned so much. I'm sure everyone on the line did as well. Kevin would love to speak to you. Again, you know, whatever time you find convenient, but this is fantastic. And thank you so much again. Thank you, Alex. Thanks for having me. Thank you, of course. 
Ark believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that Ark believes to be reliable. However, Ark does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from Ark. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements. <laughs>